Thank you for tuning in to High Green, the official podcast of the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society. High Green is funded by your membership in the Society, and any opinions expressed throughout the show are solely those of the owner. As always, if you'd like to learn more about our organization or join us, you can find our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but no. it's, it's a B&M story and it's a good one. Oh my God, he says, I don't think I ever saw a train down here before. <laughs> he was amused. You know, I still have that wanderlust. I still want to go back rowing. If you're looking to do some Boston and Maine research, finally read that long-lost article of the B&M Bulletin, or just find some good reading material. We have you covered. Now available for purchase in our online store are individual digital issues of our famous publications, the B&M Bulletin and the Modeler's Notes. Society volunteers have worked hard to scan and upload this catalog of material consisting of 50 years of amazing knowledge. As hard copies of many of these issues are now difficult to find, this will help ensure that the knowledge will always be at your fingertips. And perhaps that issue you've been looking to add to your collection, you'll be able to find here. You can head on over to the digital media section of our online store, where you'll find free indexes of both the Modeler's Notes and the B&M Bulletin. Those detail the issues, when they came out, and what articles were inside. From that information, you can then page through the various issues available and hopefully find the ones that you're looking for. And with that, we'll head into today's episode of High Green, an oral history recording from 1987, recorded by Lloyd McNair, who was a former Boston and Maine employee for many years. He worked as a fireman and occasionally as an engineer on the Con River line and the surrounding area of the Boston and Maine system. We hope you enjoy, and as always, thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. possibly November 1943. Uh, I was called one night to instruct Ernie Mercure on the operation of a Stoker and a Stoker K8 engine, and I think possibly the engine was 2709. It was in Springfield, the engine particularly, Stoker engine was in Springfield to take a deadhead special to White River of something like 25, 26 coaches for a some big move out of the North End, which I don't remember exactly what it was. And while I was waiting for those cars to arrive, they used it on the turnaround, East Deerfield, Springfield East Deerfield, SE1, ES2 is the name of it. And I was called to instruct Ernie Mercure on how to fire a stoker. And uh, Charlie Murphy was the engineer and we left Springfield somewhere in the neighborhood at 11 o'clock at night to go to East Deerfield and come back 
with a freight train. And we pulled into Northampton on the southbound trip because we were just ahead of the southbound Montrealer. We pulled into Northampton alongside next to the main line and we still had time to do our work. So we went out the uh, the other end with the with a set off and come back in the yard and close up the switches and then went about our work in the yard. And we pulled in on what is next to the main line and went back through another track and Northampton Yard had a series of stub-end tracks they call the alphabet. Well, we had to go in the alphabet nose in to get five refrigerator cars. We nosed in there and got the cars together and then in order to get them behind us we had to run around them here in the yard. And as I remember we went, we went backwards through track three up through the yard and after we got our set-off made and pickup made, we was going back through the yard and the brakeman threw the switch. And as I remember, we went down through track five. And if the brakeman had told me track five, I wouldn't have known the difference because I had only been in the yard a few times at night and I really didn't know where I was. But anyways, we were going down through the yard, and there's two brakemen, and Ernie McCure, the fireman, and me as his instructor, Murphy as the engineer. We are going down through the yard, and all of a sudden we heard a big crash, and a clump, and a clump, and we come to a, an abrupt standstill with the nose of the engine facing down about a 30-degree angle. And then we realized something was wrong, and I only took a quick look at it, a little bit later, but the engine was buried almost the headlight in mud. Track five was a dead end track. We run over the wheel stops, and they had been raining for several days. The ground was very soft, and then, of course, the minute the pile hit the ground, it started going down, and we left the we left it sitting there at a very steep angle, and went to the engine house right there within a few hundred feet and got a mogul engine. I, I think it was a 1557. It was in Northampton for the for the uh, H1 local, which went to Wheelwright. And we got that engine. In the meantime, the bootlegger went by. We got on our train and went to Springfield with the mogul engine. And they had a crew called to take it back to Northampton for the H1 crew to have to use. And when Murphy and I got in the office, we were out of service. As a sequel to the previous story, I was called, or after the, Charlie Murphy and I had an investigation in the Greenfield office a day or so later, we returned to work. And immediately, the first thing, when we marked up on the board again, we were called a deadhead to White River and for a special White River Springfield. But in the meantime, whatever engine they had sent down to Springfield to replace 
the 2709, Bob Shaw and Charlie Acklin fought at Special Wide River with these 26, 27 coaches, hand fired K8. And I assume it's the 2691 because Charlie Murphy and I were called to Deadhead of White River for the special, and they, we had the 2691 with nine Pullmans. White River, Springfield, nonstop. Now I'm assuming they must have been soldiers or military of some kind. And that was the only time that I ever fired a K8 engine and kept it right up on 200 without any trouble. Other times, whenever I'd fired those engines, I am assuming now that I was over-firing, in other words, putting in more coal than I was actually burning because of the slow exhaust and not burning up enough coal. But then on this trip, the engine was 45 mile an hour limit engine, supposedly, and but uh, it stayed right up there, hot all the way from White River, Springfield, and I was quite proud of myself. After Sometime in the early year, early, uh, I think was possibly late uh, spring in uh, 43, and uh, more likely it, it might have been October, November of 43. I was called with Walter Kirby, a special to White River, deadhead equipment, as I remember, it was two. Uh, it was 22 cars, but that had equipment with a full crew, of course, and we had a hand-fired engine. And I hadn't had too much experience at this, and I was struggling trying to get the pressure up to 200 pounds. And somewhere up above Northampton, Walter Kirby called me over across the cab, and he said, "You're working altogether too hard." And you aren't getting what your result is that you're trying to accomplish. Uh, she says, I got plenty of water. I'll give you the water for a minute. And you let your fire burn off and look in there and see if you haven't got a hole in your fire or see what is wrong. So I did just that. And I uh, looked in there with a, using a shovel as a deflector. To, and I found a hole where I wasn't, I wasn't getting the coal down in the right front corner. Uh, not quite in the corner, but down towards the right front. And I bailed in a few shovels in the proper place, and the engine come right around at 200 pounds, and Walter put the, the uh, water back on, and we went along fine all the way. He didn't work me, overwork me. The uh, engine was really overloaded with 22 cars, but as long as a non-stop train, it wasn't that serious, except on the hills, you had to work a little harder. But Walter was a real good engine man, and he was a real gentleman as well. And we were skipped along up the line there, and I remember we were stopped for a signal at Claremont Junction, and approaching Claremont from the south, there's a sag you're going downhill and then probably about uh, a thousand feet from Claremont Junction the the uh, is uphill and knowing the train he had Walter was smart and he stopped back in the sag so the tail end was coming downhill and he could see the, the signal and after a, a while we got the signal and went on into White River 
and we had a very nice trip. And then I think, as I remember it now, we were told to take rest and we doubled back with 72 the following day. Another time I was called deadhead of Springfield East Deerfield and get to 3717 and go light East Deerfield or White River Junction. When we got to Greenfield, there was a hand-fired P2 there, and you'd logically think that the Stoker-fired engine would be dragging the other one, but no, they would not, under any conditions, allow the smaller engine to be behind the bigger engine, uh, for, for fear of pulling the engine apart, apparently. So the Pacific, the P2, went on ahead, and uh, they more or less got pushed by the second engine, but we went to White River and we had to pull in at Windsor, Vermont because of the northbound Montreal are so close on our tail end. Now there was snow on the ground and we went in siding until they went by and we backed out and went north behind them. So after we, when we got to White River, we were coming back on some equipment data, all these various extras of White River had gone on up to Essex Junction because they were removing all the military personnel and equipment from from Fort Ethan Allen. Well, the fireman was a, an old-time fireman just caught for an extra job. Uh, it was fired the P-2 that was ahead of us going to White River that day and he knew the ropes and he knew the how to get it around a well not so he was not going to fire a, a hand-fired engine and let a young whipper snapper like me fire the stoker engine so he worked it around so he got swapped off onto a stoker engine and coming back I was on a double header P2 I was on the leading engine with Bill Dewey and Walter Frost was on the second engine with a I forget who the fireman was, but we had both had Pacific type engines. And we had uh, nine coaches and something like 15 or, or 20 flat cars with, uh, with the tanks and trucks and all in material for overseas. And we left White River Junction as fourth number 72. First 72, the regular passion train was due out of there something like 12:15 at noon, and we were running as fourth 72, and carrying green segments for fifth 72. Well, down towards Fellows Falls somewhere, as we ran into some torpedoes, which indicated the track was had been occupied not too recently ahead of us. But anyways. We went along down the line and we hit torpedoes various places and had to use caution. And then the, we ran into some more on the, on the CV single track down near Vernon, uh, Vermont. And we poked along slow and in the reverse curves of Central Park we came upon the tail end of the train ahead of us. Well, they, they were using engine CV-472, a borrowed or a hired engine. They were a third 72. 
and they'd been stalling for steam all along the way, and that's how come we got the torpedoes each time. Well, at East Northfield, we, they went along ahead of us from Central Park towards East Northfield, and when we got approaching East Northfield, we got some more torpedoes, and they were pulling that train in on the sidetrack at East Northfield. So when we got to East Northfield Station, they had train orders to change positions, and we became 3rd 72, and uh, each train that followed, of course, would advance one order. Well, after we left East Northfield, then they that engine that was on 4th, 3rd 72, CV 472, they come out light and followed our train to Greenfield, East Deerfield, and got a K-8 and come back to East Northfield and got that train. In the meantime, all these other trains, how many sections there were, I don't really know. But that train that was 3rd that was 72 at one time when they got out of East Northfield and got down to Springfield and got the train to New York, the train did not make the boat and there was really a great ruckus raised because that whole train load of material and men did not make the boat to go across overseas. Charlie Murphy and I were called a deadhead Springfield to Greenfield and take a special from Greenfield to Westover and return to Greenfield. This was a Pacific engine, I think seems to me it was a 3682 if I remember right. And we had probably four or five cars and we headed down and did our thing, taking the train to little man sat there and going up the west over and then we got a, took one car as a riding car and there's no way of turning the engine and we got that one car behind us and we ran backwards from Westover to Northampton and left the car out in the main line and went in Northampton and turned the engine on the turntable got out of our car and went to Greenfield. Well, the crew that was supposed to come, that came from Troy with that train, the fireman had disappeared, had gone uptown or something, and maybe uh, given more time, and, they, and we didn't take so long. But whatever the reason was, this Chris Johnson was the engineer, and when we got ready to get off the engine, Leo Gurley, our road farm of engines, is right there, and he says, Mac, don't run away. Uh, he says, I think you've got to go to Troy. And uh, I said, well, I haven't had anything to eat. He says, get something to eat, 
So I went to the counter of the restaurant in Greenfield Depot and I got a sandwich and a bottle of milk. And I come out and he says, uh, we can't find the fireman, you'll have to go to Troy, you're running his first 59, I think it was. So I got on the engine, and no more I got on, and they got the motion the way they went, and I didn't even have a chance to get a bite of the sandwich, never. But it was only one car, and we lit out for, for the tunnel line, headed for for Hoosick Tunnel and, and Troy, and we got up on the mountain and got stuck below Shelburne Falls somewhere, waiting for a signal, and I got a chance to eat. Well, we got into Troy somewhere around 9 and 10 o'clock at night. The engineer was very anxious to get in uh, before a certain time because he had a regular run from Troy to Boston the next day. Well, this was on a Saturday. The next day he had a regular run and a pasture run. So he wanted to get in so he'd get his rest to go back on his own run. Well, I went into Troy that night tired, hungry, and I asked where I could get something to eat, and he sent me through the back alleys there somewhere to a, a dive. And I didn't, of course, I didn't drink. So I, when I went in this dive, I, the bartender says, what can I get you? And I said, I'm looking for something to eat. He said, well, what would you like? And I said, a steak if you got it. He said, all right. He said, what would you drink? And I said, milk. Well, I was, I felt kind of foolish drinking milk in the bar room, but... Uh, nevertheless, I had my dinner, and then I slept overnight in there, the crummiest bunk room that there ever was made in the United States. The, the blankets were old blankets, probably hadn't been washed since the day they were put in there, and they certainly smelled it. I don't know there's any any vermin there, but the, the bathrooms was just something that you wouldn't you wouldn't wash your boots in, uh, and they called that a bunk room, they furnished it free, but that's, uh, they ought to pay you to stay in it. Well, the next day, I, Sunday morning, I rode on the engine over to the depot with the engineer, and uh, I deadhead to Greenfield and then Greenfield home, and that was a big, long day. One night, I was called for fire for Ed Lindquist on a Pacific type engine, and we were going to go to Westover with something like 18 cars out of Springfield. And we went north, and uh, a K8 followed us with Lester Hill and Bob Shaw as a crew on that. They followed us to railhead at Westover, and they coupled on, and they were the leading engine going up the hill from West Willamance to Westover, which is a very heavy grade, well, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2% grade there for some ways. And we were, I was on the north end uh, firing the, what would be the pusher on the hill. We went up to Westover and they loaded those 18 coaches with personnel and then after a while they released us and going downhill that is uh, quite a steep affair and it was limited at that time the rail was good rail it was limited to 20 miles an hour except 10 miles an hour over all the crossings which was four or five of those 
and we poked along slowly, and the engineer, uh, he was a nice enough man when he wasn't on the engine, but he was a very much out of, like a fish out of the water on the engine because he, he really didn't know what he was doing or he didn't have confidence in himself. So going down that hill, we were really hooping it. I would dare say 35, 40 miles an hour down that hill, a 20-mile speed restriction. It's a wide sweeping curb with no elevation on the track to compensate for the curb. And you can just imagine the feeling of the, of the crew on the tail end, on the, on the uh, engine on the tail end, coming down that hill backwards. Well, we got to the bottom of the hill successfully, needless to say. And they had the uh, a crew down there flagging the southbound main, and we went through the crossovers from the westover onto the northbound, and then through the crossovers, mainline crossovers, from the northbound to the southbound. And when we got out on the main line, our engine was cut off, and the trailing crew, uh, Lester Hill and Bob Shaw, was headed for Springfield, and they took that train to Springfield. Well, the Lester Hill was my father-in-law, and when I got home, he saw me and he said, what was ever that man doing when he went down that hill so like that? He said, I just reached for the double-headed cock to put the string in emergency because I was so afraid that we were going to tip over on the curve going down that hill, and I could well understand but he only braked that train once going down that hill with all the hundreds of lives at stake. He was a very, very poor judgment. After I got a start, steady job, on a, a regular job on some particular train, and not only I, but all the others, we frequently got called for extra jobs, for specials, and men laid off and didn't have crews. But this particular time I was called I had a regular job and I was called to fire a special to White River. And uh, it was a double header, as I remember it. And when we left Springfield, Charlie Murphy was the engineer, and we left Springfield. I had a train hour to hoop down at WA Tower. It said, uh, engine such and such, whatever it might be, run past your extra Springfield to White River Junction and has right over all trains. And the road foreman, Merrill Pierce, is riding with us. He says, young man, he says, look at that order and digest it well. You probably will never see another like it. Well, anyways, we went to White River and... Uh, Sometime later, it re dawned on me what that might be. And I went back through my time book and I found the date. And it was a time that Roosevelt was the night before the money conference at Bretton Woods that uh, Stalin was at. And Roosevelt, very likely, and almost, almost certainly, was on that train. And I never realized it. And I wished I'd kept the train order because... As, the man, as Mr. Pierce said, it was very unusual order. You probably would never see another one like it. And that meant that all trains, regular scheduled trains and everything else, had to 
look out for us. We had to write over everything. I was called fire and expert from from Springfield via Westover to Mechanicville and returned. And the, the engine was a brand spanking new out of the shop, 2714, recently stoked with a with a bigger cab on it. And it was a beautiful engine, nice and tight, run well. We went light to Willamancet and backed up to Westover onto a train. And I don't remember particularly what the train was. We went to Mechanicville and yarded the train, went to the house to have the engine serviced and got our dinner. And Johnny Peters was a pilot engineer from Greenfield to Mechanicville and back. And he warned the brakeman when we were, they were backing onto a, uh, a Holyoke train, straight Holyoke train. As I remember it with a lot of reefers, but I don't know what was in the reefers, of course. And we backed on this straight Holyoke train in Mechanicville Yard, and he warned the brakeman uh, about looking under the car for a skate, which they, they use on the hump on the first car around the track was on uh, at the other off end away from the hump was on run out of a skate so as the cars wouldn't run out the other end and then when the, the trains were moved you backed up a little bit and got off the skate which the front the, the leading wheels were sitting on so as to hold the cars in place well he come up the brakeman come up on the engine and the engineer asked about the skate He's oh yeah, there's nothing under it. So, brakeman took the conductor, engineer took his matter's word, and then he got kind of concerned, thinking about it, and he went off, got off the engine, went walked back the length of the tender, and there the car was sitting right on the skate, just like he told him it would be. And uh, he was a, a real nice guy, a lot of fun, but when he already had warned the man about the skate and it ended up sitting on the skate. He wasn't a, a bit pleased, and I, I will always remember how that man. He was a short, stubby man, and he had an accent. I'm not sure what an accent was, but he had an accent, and he got raving at this kind of rubber boot brakeman, as, as I told about in other parts, and. He sure give him the dickens. During the war time, I fired many trains, many extras, some prison trains, some hospital trains, various things. And one particular that comes to my mind was a, a double-header uh, double prison train going north. Now, I assume they landed the prisoners in New York, and I'm quite sure that they were going to Canada. Now, whose prisoners they were, American or English or what, I don't know, except that we had a big train of coaches, and they were, they said it was prison trains, and there was a guard at each vestibule with searchlights, and by prearrangement, every time you're going to make a stop, you must blow a long whistle so the guards could be ready to open the vestibule doors and and uh, get off on the ground uh, to guard the train to see that no 
buddy come out the windows while standing. And I remember particularly at Brattleboro when we were taking water, I got off to take water. The uh, guards hit the ground the same time I did with their searchlights and they turned them on and the length of the train and the one on the tail end, he had his, his searchlight on, on the headed toward the head end on both sides of the train. And after I took water, then the second engine had to take water as well. And that's the only one that I remembered it was so closely guarded. There were others, but that was the only one I remember so closely guarded. And then uh, there was numerous times uh, a hospital train, which would be all Pullmans, usually five or six Pullmans, and they always seem to be going north. As any ones that I remember were always going north, and how far they went, uh, I'm assuming they, they probably went to uh, Canada as well, but they uh, probably was uh, maybe five or six, and uh, I'm assuming it was a boatload distributed different lines going towards the same destination or not, I don't know. But it was numerous times we fired the hospital trains. I was called to go Springfield to Boston with two cars, 3688. I don't remember the engineer particularly, but we, 3688 was a hand-fired P2. And these two cars were supposedly to go to Boston with. And somewhere between Springfield and East Deerfield, they changed it, and we was to run via the loop back to Greenfield and get three more cars, which we did. We left Greenfield after making the proper brake tests and all, and left Greenfield with five cars deadhead to go to Boston. And somewhere between Greenfield and Pittsburgh, we got a message that we will back onto eight cars at Fitchburg and take those to Boston. So when we left Fitchburg, we had eight deadhead coaches, or 13 deadhead coaches, eight plus the five we already had. And we went right into Boston, south north station, right into the button block, and then backed them out in the passenger yard, yard the train, cut off, go to the house, and they had an hour or so time off to get your lunch and, and when we get back to work we got the 3631 another hand-fired engine go over to the passenger yard in Boston back on the five coaches go to air light back into Devons load the coaches and then go to Greenfield, or East Deerfield, Greenfield, uh, and Springfield. Well, when we come out of air with our five loaded coaches, they had the, the dwarf signal on the ground was green, and a, and a 45 on the order board on the air tower, which meant run ahead of a passenger train until overtaken. And we headed west on a passenger train time I think that was 57, if I remember right. So when we got to Fitchburg, right at the bottom of Ashburnham Hill, got to Fitchburg, the depot there had a 45, which meant run ahead 
until all were taken. And Richardson was the engineer, and he dropped that thing down in the corner, and he mollyhocked that thing all the way up South Ashburnham Hill there, 16 miles. And then he got the top of there, he says, we got 10 minutes on him now. And after he worked the daylights out of me, and I, matter of fact, I couldn't keep it quite hot because he was mollyhocking so bad. And then he got to the top of the hill and he had 10 minutes on him. Well, he wasn't a very smart engineer because uh, the 45 in the order board give you a right to run ahead and, and certainly if they were going to do anything, uh, they didn't want you to run ahead, they would have put you in the siding or on another main or let, or let the other guy run around you. You didn't have to gain 10 minutes on their time on a hill, which... Uh, well, it would be quite a feat to do uh, under ordinary conditions when he... Ten minutes is quite a lot of time to gain on a schedule, on a fast schedule. This story is being recorded June 27th, 1985. June 27th, 1965 was a day my good friend Marcel Charbonneau was buried. Uh, he was a conductor at Holyoke with me at the time we got sideswiped there a few days previous to that. As I remember it, it was something like the, the 23rd or 24th. We were switching Holyoke Yard, preparatory crossing over to do our work on uh, the American writing paper, and we were at Appleton Street crossovers waiting for a southbound freight to go, and as soon as they left, their tail end cleared enough so we had the switches open, which covered our five-minute waiting period, and the brakeman and conductor had gone and made move the open switches on the other end of the Appleton Street crossover at the main line. Preparatory, as soon as we JS2 had gone by, that we would cross over from the yard to the southbound, and southbound to the northbound, and northbound into the yard on the other side of the main line. JS2 was particularly early that day, and as soon as they left depot, left the stations, so we could get out on the main line, we followed them out, and the switches had been open approximately 20 minutes, and there's a five-minute rule which required you to wait when opening crossovers, and we had several flat cars next to the engine plus box cars south of that, and we shoved those out, we were back the engine, we're backing up, shoving those cars out on the southbound main as soon as JS2 left, and then when we get on the main line over the crossover, we're pulling through the, from the southbound main line to the northbound main line through the crossover. And there was a long whistle on the bridge. And the, right away we thought of the northbound day freight. But there was cars enough over in the yard that we couldn't see around the curves. And But I could see the headlight reflection on the side of the cars. And Ernie Mercure was running the engine. I was in the cab with him when he had the 1177 Alco switcher. And I hollered to him the minute I saw him. 
I hollered, Ernie, he can't make it. He can't stop. Back up, back up. Oh, Ernie went in the back here, was backing up, and he was still coming up around the curve there, a pretty fast clip. Well, that engine caught the cab one foot from the rear end of the cab and raked the whole side of the engine and took all the handrails off it and it took all the reservoirs off of it. They, were, they had an Alco leading, or had two Alcos leading with a EMD following three unit train, 85 cars. And nobody got hurt, derailed one end of one car, but it crippled the two leading Alco engines on the SJ-1. Well, when everything got settled, our engine was still usable, even though the side was tore off it. And, but the uh, SJ-1 power was crippled. They had one unit left working out of three. Well, after all the fooling around, they finally decided that they would cut off the two cripples and get out of that 85 cars with a single. And I would go down to Willamancet, get on the tail end of them with my crippled engine. It was mechanically it was all right. It had power and everything except that the side was tore off it. And that's what we did. And we pushed them out of, out of Holyoke. Uh, oh, we went up to pull, pull the train back. We went down to Willamancet and got on the tail end and pulled it back through the, the Westover railhead crossovers. And that engine, their engine, their single unit came down the southbound through the crossovers onto the, the head end that we pulled back for them. And we had a flag up at the Holyoke Depot, so as to flag that train north on the southbound, through the crossovers onto the northbound in front of the Holyoke Depot, and to Greenfield or the White River Junction. And our switcher pushed him until we got up to the yard limit board north of Holyoke, and he went on to Greenfield with that one engine. He wasn't going very fast, he said, but he went along all the way. When he got to White River, he was out of service. And they didn't say anything to me about being out of service or anything of the kind. Well, the following morning, this engineer, Bill House, he lived in Greenfield. He walked down to the depot. The, the office was in Greenfield. He walked down to the office. He went in and says, uh, I'll take full responsibility for that mess down the ESD. It was my fault. And the circumstances were that he had <coughs> had a set-off for Holyoke with instructions to set it off at third section, which was in Willamancet. And right about halfway in third section siding is a northbound signal. And he went by that signal, which was green at the time, and he made his set-off. But when he went back on his train, he was still north of the signal. And the rule is, when stopped within the limits of a block or entering within the limits of a block, you must proceed at restricted speed to the next signal. 
Well, he was stopped within the limits of the block, and he, he uh, should have proceeded not exceeding 15 miles an hour until the next signal, which would have been a mile away, but he'd forgotten a lapse of memory, and everybody else, when you one forgets, they all forget. And they went up through there wide open in three units, 85 cars, and caught me side, sideways. And uh, it was a trying uh, experience, but uh, nobody got hurt. It was well, well documented that our crew was in the right because uh, of the length of time. The switches had been open at least 20 minutes, which he... Had, at the time, he had not consumed uh, after he'd gone through the clear, by the clear signal on the northbound, he did not observe the signal, the rule from there to, to Holyoke, which would have kept me from getting hit sideswiped. Probably around Labor Day time in 1947, I owned regular passenger jobs, Springfield White River and back. And we were up there, up Labor Day morning on 7.03, I assume. And on the way southbound on 74, it was holiday time, and they were running two sections. And I was firing for Ed Masson on 74 this day, we had the 3621, and we're running his first 74, and Marty Hogan was going to be running his second 74, and we have no way of knowing how far behind he was. It doesn't make this that isn't part of the story. But down below William Siding, as we approached East Putney Putney Meadows. Around and coming around the curve on the engineer side, I couldn't see it the last minute. And he opened the whistle and put it in emergency at the same time and there was a herd of cattle. The farmer was running his herd, probably 50, 60 cows across the crossing to the barn. Well, when I come around in my view, I see the farmer trying to, on my side, trying to stop them cattle from going across the track, which when one starts, you know, they're all going, they're running probably three abreast over this narrow crossing. Well, I don't know why he wasn't killed, but he wasn't, but we were in that herd of cattle and killed three of them. And, of course, the, the guts and the manure and all over the front of the smoke box, and it smelt to the high heaven, and naturally we stopped. And soon got going again, went into Springfield, and a day or so later, I saw the Boston Maine claim agent at uh, Greenfield Depot in the morning, and I spoke to him and said, good morning. I says, uh, have you been up to see the, about them cattle yet? He said, well, you know, young man, he says, nothing enhances the value of a cow any more than be crossed with a, with a steam engine. And so the B&M evidently must have paid a pretty good price for that prize cattle was a Holstein herd, and uh, he claimed that uh, the claim agent said that the, that was one of the prize, one of the best producers in their herd. So whether it was or it wasn't, who knows?
some time during the winter of 1946 and 7, uh, I had this night freight job with this rubber boot engineer, and we had some horrendous trips. And this one particularly is very vivid in my mind. We left White River late on the way home after having had a horrendous trip north as well. And the instructions from the conductor leaving White River were to pull in at North Walpole in the middle and let 728 go by. Well, 728, when we pulled in the middle and got down to the south end of the middle, 728 was not due out of Claremont, and we had ample time to do our work. So while we're waiting for the five-minute rule on the switches, I took water on this 4100 engine. The big tank uh, was, a, was a big tank engine, but I took water. And while we were taking water, the brakemen were laying the switches, supposedly, to go out onto the northbound main again, and then back into the North Walpole yard to pick up our cars. Well, the switch, normal switch movement, uh, is to, to go from the middle to the north southbound, and the brakeman threw the switch, so made the movement to go from the middle to the northbound. And after I got done taking water, the brakeman gave the motion to go ahead, and the engineer started moving down to, supposedly to go on to the south mound. And instead of that, there was uh, we headed for the, for the northbound. I neglected to tell you that the snow was uh, roughly a foot deep or or more. Well, when I discovered the front end of the engine was converging with the northbound, I heard 717 at Bellows Falls Depot, uh, whistling just north of Bellows Falls Depot, and he was coming up the, the northbound main on a, on a grade signal, which is permission to go by a red signal at uh, 15 miles an hour. And I had just taken my overshoes off, and I hollered the engineer, and he stopped, and I jumped off and went snow up, at least up to my knees without any overshoes on, and flagged with my red light, flag 717. And they answered and stopped in time. So when I got back on the engine, the steam was low and the fire was low, and engineer was trying to back up with probably uh, 160, 70 pounds of steam when it should have had 260. So I, we had to sit there a few minutes and blow the engine around to get enough steam to back up. Well, as soon as he started backing up, the brakeman on the ground gave 717 a proceed motion and they started along again and we stalled. So I had to grab the red light and jump off again in the snow. Well, eventually, no damage was done. Eventually, we got back in the clear so 717 could go north past us. And the, needless to say, this rubber boot engineer was thoroughly tore out at these foolish brakemen. And the, uh, for some time or other, he turned the, he told 
the conductor about it. Well, these brakemen were very poor quality men to begin with. And he, break, the conductor reported them in the, for disciplinary action. I don't really know if anything was ever taken or not, but they, it was one of the many, many trips that uh, were far from being ideal conditions. The conditions were, were bad enough with the bad weather and uh, but to have the, the likes of them two guys on there that didn't know beans and didn't care and cared less made some of them trips on that particular winter one, one terrible long long winter this is a story I wish I had some proof of but uh, not being able to get the, the train order which we worked under I would uh, have a hard time proving it, that it was, I think, was Roosevelt's train. It was 1944, the time of the Bretton Woods Money Conference. I was called to stick with night to fire a train to White River, especially to White River. Charlie Murphy was the engineer, which he seemed to be one of the engineers I got most often on these specials. And we had a double header. I think there were K-8 engines, if I remember right, Stokert, and the road foreman, Merle Pierce, was riding with us on this particular train. It wasn't a real heavy train. As I remember, there was only 9 to 11 cars thereabouts. And everything was... Uh, I think we got the train in the Haven Yard at Springfield. Uh, nevertheless, when we went... Going north to W.A. Tower in Springfield, we had orders hooked on. We were carrying white signals, white lights, and white flags. And it just as a, for instance, as I remember the order, uh, not knowing the correct engine number either, but it was, a, as I said, probably a K-8. Uh, engine 2714 run passenger extra. Springfield to White River Junction and has right over all trains. So after the engineer had read it and the road foreman had read it, he handed it to me and he says, take note, young man, you probably will never see another order like it. So uh, I can't remember what, we had a good trip and non-stop except for getting water at Brattleboro. We were headed up through the countryside. And I remember very distinctly, we were just north of South Charleston, between South Charleston and Charleston, and the Merle Pierce was an older man transferred over to our division as a as a qualified man from the New Hampshire division. And uh, he was so well-liked and uh, well-known that they made him a road foreman. He was really a gentleman, very much of a gentleman at all times. And he says to me, young man, how long have you been firing? And I told him. And he thought a minute, and he says, well, he says, if you behave yourself and pass your examinations, he says, I dare say that you will probably be set up as an engineer uh, within probably by the time you've been around here at least 10 years. And uh, I, I always remember that, and we became good friends whenever we saw each other. Uh, he was always very friendly and very willing to talk, and but... I think 
very strongly, and I wished I had proof of it, I've even tried to find proof of it through some of the old-time operators, if they remember the order or if they might have a copy of the order, that uh, because it was that time in July 1944 during that money conference, and I feel strongly that it probably was President Roosevelt's train at that time. This is April 30th, 1987. After having recently heard of the almost near completion of the tearing up of the track from Doe Junction to Brattleboro, uh, after having torn up, they've already torn the track up from Doe Junction to Keene some time ago, and now they're completing the tearing up of this track uh, on account of the abandonment of the Connecticut River Bridge, brought to mind the, the story about the time of the wreck at Dummerston. JS2 was coming south. Uh, I can't tell you the year now. Somewhere is the, before 1960, or before, before 1962. I was on the SJ1 for a regular job, a night freight going north. This particular night, I hadn't heard anything about the wreck. Uh, I had three unit diesel going north on SJ3, SU1, whichever it might have been at the time. And we didn't get too big a train leaving East Deerfield that night. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 cars, but the train orders said uh, engine 4228 run extra Greenfield to Keene uh, so uh, that meant that uh, we would have to go on the Keene branch at Dole Junction and up over the Keene branch and then onto the Cheshire branch and they had a pilot for me at Keene to pilot me from Keene to Bellows Falls and then Bellows Falls north on our normal route. Well, as I remember, the, the speed restriction at that time on the branch was 25 miles an hour and the, there had been no heavy, heavy power or heavy cars over that track uh, at any speed for quite some while. But to take three unit diesel which was more or less concentrating the power, plus the 45 cars, when ordinarily they'd be getting the switcher engine with maybe half a dozen cars at the most. Uh, 25 miles an hour was on the poor light rail and no ties. It was rather a interesting experience, and I hadn't been up over the Keene branch for, oh, I would I would say five or six years at so it was uh, the, not being used to it, the branch and knowing where the, you could follow the hospitals. It was just a, an unusual experience. As a sequel to this previous story, uh, the cause of this Dummerson wreck was a flat car loaded with 12 by 12 timbers, uh, roughly. 35, 40 feet long, and the timbers got loose. And they went on single track, they went crossways on 
on the cars and they, they hit the ledges at Dumberson's reverse curves and tore a signal down and hit the ledges and derailed, I don't know how many cars, but a good many of those timbers went into the river because the railroad, on that curve, the railroad is right almost vertically down, uh, uh, sitting on ledges and the river is vertically down. Well, good many of those timbers got into the river if not all of them. And the, uh, with a farmer across the, the river, apparently had saw it, had seen it, or had heard it, and he was about to get himself some timbers for his barn. And he came across sometime and got several timbers and floated them across and skid them up into his barn and, and put them in place in his barn and one of our brakemen lived in the close proximity to that on the New Hampshire side of the river and he discovered what had happened and he reported it to the railroad police. The railroad police went up there and approached the man and the man denied that anything of the kind and, and he asked for permission to, to go in the barn and they, there he found these new timbers sitting on temporary props underneath in the barn, supposedly holding the barn floor up. And he's, the railroad police suggested that he put them back in the river and take them across the other side where they, where he got them and no charges would be made. So that's what he did, according to the, the railroad police story. And later on, uh, within another few days, those timbers, they were salvage, most all of them were salvageable, but the, uh, the, uh, so B&M got somebody together and they made a raft out of them and took them down and tied them, to, uh, just below the bridge in, in the river, tied them just below the bridge at Brattleboro. Uh, and then somebody got them out of there and I have no idea who it might have been, but they, that's, uh, they got some salvage out of it. And as to the further increasing the story about this Dumberson wreck, the following day, southbound, we had a, a large, a fairly large train leaving White River Junction. And as we approached Brattleboro that night, we had a pickup to make as usual. And I got a a red signal at West River. And the operator at Brattleboro gave permission to pull down the the local freight, Bellows Falls, or the East Deerfield of Bellows Falls local freight returning to East Deerfield was ahead of us. And they were down there just north of the crossing of Brattleboro, which we pulled down slowly behind him, and the brake went down to get the necessary information about the pickup and all. And part of the pick, part of the information was that this local had set their caboose off and set their train off and had their caboose only next to the engine with 18 cripple cars that were chained together without any brakes. 
behind the caboose. There was an air hose running from front to rear uh, over the top of these cars, but the brakes, all the brakes in those cars were inoperative. And they were putting the train out of ahead of JS4, me, the train I was on, they were putting it out of Brattleboro ahead of us to go to Greenfield. And they had cripple cars and 10 miles an hour restriction on them. After they had left town, the operator gave us verbal permission to go by the, the block signal, which was supposedly holding any further movements uh, until after the expiration of 10 minutes, because on the count of CV being single track, the rule was that no train would enter a block until the expiration of 10 minutes. And the, the operator gave us verbal permission to go down by that block signal, and we were not to leave Brattleboro until a certain time, which we had used more than used up because it would take more than 10 minutes to make our pickup. But at least when we left Brattleboro, our time had more than expired, probably by half an hour at least. And I spoke to my two brakemen at the car in the cab, plus the fireman, uh, that I had no intentions of going very fast on account of that train with all them cripples being ahead of me and no block signals. And we just poked along. We had exactly 100 cars leaving Brattleboro. And down to Central Park, which is part of Vernon, we got two torpedoes, which further reduced the speed. It was uh, in reverse curves, and uh, I was already very cautious because of the, that kind of a train was ahead of me. And then we kept going along slowly, and just before we lit the signal uh, on the approach light to East Northfield, we got two more, and then immediately the approach light lit and there was a red there. And we proceeded to that and stopped and made the observed the rules and went on down. And then. As we went along down, we couldn't see any cars ahead of us, but the, the lights at the, on the bridge at East Northfield were all red. And we were approaching slowly, then finally we got a, a bottom yellow on the southbound signal, which gave us permission to go by it, and that's all. There was no guarantee of anything of a, of a good route. The route was occupied anyway. And that made me think well, these crippled cars with no brakes chained together on an uphill grade there for three or four miles. And I spoke to my brake, my crew again. I says, keep a sharp eye. We are running, uh, we're going uphill on a red block. And all these crippled cars, if anything happens and they break in two, they're going to come down the mountain a hell of a hooping for it. 
headed for us, and I said, I'm going to be out the door. I'm just going to put thing in emergency out the door. I'm not going to stay here and wait for them to crash into me. Well, we proceed on down through and up by Mount Herman Gravel Pit, and you go into a reverse curve through the ledges, and expecting any minute to see the tail end. And we got up past Mount Herman Crossing, and shortly after that, we got some torpedoes again. The flagman was swinging his lantern. And we proceeded along slowly, and I've been considering our hundred cars and uh, no radios. Would my tail end clear Mount Herman Crossing, or would I be blocking the crossing? So I kept going and going and going, and I went up probably within three or four car lengths of the tail end. And I felt quite sure the tail end was in the clear. I wasn't certain, but I felt quite sure it was. And they come back and told us that they had oh, four or five hot boxes on these crippled cars, and they were changing the brasses. Well, the time was getting shorter and shorter all the while for for uh, 7.33, the bootlegger, not the other. Well, the, the other guy was on the engine, on the uh, wreck train, he was the one that had to flag 7.33. And after a while, the, the, the uh, Karnacher gang and Everybody, they were all tied out from re-railing cars and everything. And they were all kind of ugly bunch, but they finally got them brasses changed and in the uh, hot boxes. And they started to go ahead. In the meantime, somebody evidently had walked up or had come up in a car to, to uh, Hill Road Crossing. Burniston, and they'd walk from there up to the engine. So they had train orders for that train to have right over 733, and then when I came along, uh, I stopped, and they gave me train orders likewise, uh, right over 733 from Burniston, or from East Northfield, I forget which, but anyways, from Burniston to Silver Street Greenfield. And I never will forget how tore out and how mad I was to think that they would, the management would put that kind of a train out ahead of a 100-car freight train and put it, it put you in, in an awful position. I don't know what the outcome might have been, of course, if, if them cars had broken loose. That wraps up this week's episode of High Green. If you'd like to be on the show or know somebody who might have some interesting stories about the Boston and Maine Railroad or its legacy, please reach out to us. You can email us at bmrrhs at gmail.com or send us a message right on Facebook 